Good morning, South Oaks Church Live. We are so glad you're here again today. And let me just uh, add my own personal welcome to all of you. I'm Pastor Cindy. I'm glad you're part of the service today. Uh, this is our second week in a four-week series called God's Grace. Last week, Pastor Steve started us out talking about God's grace and that it meant and means so much more than forgiveness. Jesus' uh, death on the cross offered us so much more than forgiveness. And grace actually can teach us a new way to live. There's a great challenge following the, or uh, facing the followers of Jesus today. And part of that is that we have a limited view of God's grace. The grace of God, which is greater than our minds can understand, and it's more available than the air that we breathe, has been captured almost and domesticated for our weekly use by how we look at it. The grace of God, which is capable of reaching across every culture, every gender, every generation, has been reduced to mean just forgiveness for everyone. And we have turned it to our uses instead of his. Many people would say, you know what? God loves me just the way I am. We're so comfortable with that statement, aren't we? That God loves us just the way we are. But we're maybe a little less comfortable with God loves me so much, he won't let me stay the way that I am. Last week, Pastor Steve read a passage, and I'd like to read it again today, from Titus 2, verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So that shows us that his grace first saves and then it teaches. And most of us are okay with receiving forgiveness, but maybe we don't take the time to really understand how to deny the ungodliness and the worldly passions and to live those righteous, upright lives. Followers of Jesus might be a little confused at this point because week after week, they hear of the complete work of Jesus on the cross. They're told that there's nothing they can do to earn God's approval or earn salvation. And yet, they are also encouraged to live holy lives and keep the commandments to walk in a manner that pleases God. Richard Foster, a man who has spent his uh, entire adult life, he's an author and he has encouraged Christians to grow in the grace of God and he points out that the message of grace is something more than just a means for gaining forgiveness. Foster says that in some churches there's a disconnect between the good news of Jesus' sacrifice and our calling to become the light of the world. Regularly hearing the same message along with the same remedy, people remain in the same place, he says. Having been saved by grace, these people have been paralyzed by it. And that's what we're talking about today is have we been paralyzed by God's grace? It kind of reminded me of another concept, uh, author Tommy Tenney, who wrote those God Chaser books, uh, few years ago, says that we have just enough of religion in our lives to be inoculated against the real presence of God. And the same thing is true 
in our understanding of the grace of God, just enough of the grace of God in our lives to become immune to really experiencing the amazing work of God in our lives. If we think that God's grace is just another way to describe forgiveness, we'll never discover that there is grace for everyday living, for relationships, and ministry to others. In the New Testament alone, there are connections between grace and truth, grace and power, grace and spiritual gifts, grace and thanksgiving, grace and generosity, grace and provision, grace and suffering, grace and destiny, and even more because that list goes on. In our view of grace, if it's limited to just receiving forgiveness, Jesus cannot be our model for how to receive grace, live in grace, and depend on grace. So who taught Peter, John, Paul, and so many others to live the grace-filled life we see in the book of Acts and in the history of the church? So that begs the question for us today, how can we apply God's grace to our everyday lives? To those of us who've been in church for some time, grace means that we, the followers of Jesus, have gotten a really great deal, right? I mean, our sins have been forgiven. Grace has sometimes been described as not getting what we deserve, that's for sure, or God's unmerited favor, or that an acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense. Now, all of these ideas about grace are true, right? They're all true, but they only tell part of the truth. These partial truths can actually harm our spiritual growth. So have you ever said this? Just think a moment. Uh, You can say yes or no in the privacy of your living room there. Have you ever said, I'm just a sinner saved by grace? How many of you ever said that? Yeah, yeah. So we say, there's nothing good inside of me. I'll always be a sinner because that's what I always do. And some of us have sung that same song for a long time. When we agreed with our sin diagnosis, we apparently thought it described a permanent condition. Dallas Willard warns us against the idea that the low level of spiritual living among professing Christians should be regarded as only natural. Only what is to be expected. Hey, with that idea, constant uh, failure becomes our destiny. Christ's ministry is nothing but unending forgiveness in our lives. Many followers of Christ have experienced a new birth, but somehow they think they're supposed to stay this spiritual baby forever. We have over-talked about what sin takes away, and we have under-talked about what the Spirit of God put in us. Dr. Willard is concerned with more than the cure for sin. Yes, our lives in Jesus Christ must start with a cure, for sure. But the possibilities of new life in Jesus Christ are actually endless. My father-in-law used to pray at family gatherings, and he ended every prayer with, Lord, forgive us for our sins, the many ways that we failed you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And it didn't matter if he was blessing food before a meal or asking for wisdom in an important decision, The closing was his default uh, praise, like a customized signature at the end of every email. I'm sure he was really sincere every time he prayed it, but I wonder about that. 
God didn't want that for us to be constantly just thinking about how sinful we are. No friendship on earth could survive if one partner said to another constantly, I'm no good. I mean, imagine if I did that with Pastor Steve all the time. Hey, Pastor Steve, I'm no good. What kind of a relationship could require a constant stating of our own inadequacies? Well, here's kind of what it's like. It's like the Old Testament relationship. And the book of Hebrews discusses this practice of forgiveness before Jesus came. In Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 3, it says, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices, repeatedly, endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sin. So look at that final phrase. The Old Testament worshipers, it tells us, had an annual reminder of their sins. When we pray constantly about our sins, we remind ourselves about our sin every time we pray. There's an unspoken message that we're powerless, um, powerless about sin, powerless against it before we came to Jesus, and apparently we're powerless against it when we receive him as our Savior. That's kind of a disconnect there. Dallard Willard calls this miserable sinner theology. Miserable sinner theology. If we're told often enough that we're miserable sinners who are unable to overcome our shortcomings in God's eyes, sooner or later we begin to see ourselves in that way. Even though we've become followers of Jesus Christ. For such people, Following Jesus does not include the possibility of being formed into his likeness. So today, let's talk about how to apply God's grace to our lives. The first thing is we need to understand the full picture of what Jesus did for us. It's not just a problem with our understanding of grace here. It's also understanding Jesus, his message, his sacrifice, his kingdom, and his mission for us. To see the work of Jesus as nothing but unending uh, offering for sin is to consign him to just the role of an Old Testament priesthood. He's a greater priesthood, it tells us in God's word, capable of changing us at the very core of who we are. I'm grateful he paid the price for my sin, and aren't you? I'm grateful for that. Eternally grateful, but we should also be grateful for his resurrection, the empowerment of the resurrection, which can change us from the inside out. Then we can see Jesus is not just in that Old Testament temple, and we can receive him not only as the source of forgiveness, but also as the master teacher of life. This is the full work of grace. Make no mistake, sin is cancer. We don't want that in our lives, and it will kill us in this life and the next. It's serious business. So the Father has provided a serious remedy. It's called new birth. Paul calls it a new creation. Peter calls us newborn babes. Ask yourself, 
Are these phrases to you just religious terms? Or are they a spiritual reality in your life? The image of spiritual birth also contains the hope of spiritual growth. Are we forever trapped within the cancer of sin? No. Grace can wipe away that sin. The blood of Jesus can wash that off of us. Grace teaches us how to live our lives to avoid sin. That's not a cure. Just a cure. That is a treatment. Our challenge is how we see Jesus. For you, is he only a treatment for your sin? When we limit the work of Jesus to just forgiveness, we don't see the possibilities of experiencing new life with him here and now. That would be a shame because the cure really does work, not only in the next life, but it also works here for us right now. Here's a modern parable to kind of give us a little more understanding of this. Once there were two high school students who each received scholarship to Harvard University. That's pretty great, right? Well, they had full rides and every possible expense was paid. Both of these students were bright kids and both felt intimidated a little bit by that reputation of that great college. They each thought, I don't deserve to be here. One student studied day and night. She gave it all she had. The other student began to enjoy the thrill of college life, parties, the big city nearby, and the freedom of being on their own for the first time in their lives. By midterm, the first student was still working hard, earning C's and B's in their courses. The other was failing every class and was faced on academic probation. By Christmas, the first student had earned a 3.0 GPA, but the second had flunked out of Harvard. Which of these two students laid hold of the opportunity given to them? Well, of course you would say, the first student, right? Humble, hardworking, doing a good job, trying to show that they wanted to uh, be doing a good job with what they'd been given. The second student squandered it. How could he throw away an opportunity like that, you might ask? Yeah. Imagine for a moment that the grace of God is like a full ride to Harvard. Beyond expectation, every expense paid, a life-changing opportunity. Anyone watching these two students would conclude that the student who flunked out had thrown away a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Yeah, the scholarship to Harvard was a gift of grace, but the truth was that the work was just beginning. God's grace is something like this parable. He does for us what we could not possibly do for ourselves. What we cannot do for ourselves is joyfully pay in full by Jesus Christ. But his work is just the beginning for us. Why would we squander the possibilities of new birth in Christ, like the student who received a full ride to Harvard? We need to receive the grace of God for what it is, a calling to a new life, a new kind of life right now.
Some people might not like that close association between grace and work. They might say, hey, God's grace comes with no strings attached, doesn't it? And we should be clear about this. No amount of work or effort on our part can win his pardon, can earn our salvation. That is true enough, but that's not the whole story. So to understand God's grace, first we need to understand the full picture of what Jesus did for us, and secondly, we need to pick up the ropes of the family business. Beyond the fact that God paid a debt we couldn't pay, there's more. Our new birth into being a follower of Jesus Christ is an invitation into the kingdom of God, even here on earth. And this is demonstrated for us in the life of the Apostle Paul. In the earliest days of his conversion to Christ, he knew immediately that Jesus Christ had laid hold of him for a purpose. He knew that right away. And Paul was filled with gratitude for God's grace and forgiveness, and he was eager to get on with God's work. We see this in 1 Corinthians 3.9. He calls himself God's fellow worker. In his calling as an apostle, he considered the church in Corinth to be God's field, and he considered himself privileged to join that workforce. Paul was well aware, and he says this many times, that he did not have any moral standing in his own to plant, preach, or pastor God's new church in Corinth. After all, he'd persecuted Christians for many years. Thank goodness he was also aware that his qualifications were not the issue. 1 Corinthians 15.10 says, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. That's kind of a strange combination of words that Paul uses here, isn't it? He uses the word grace and works harder in one sentence. When we lived in France, our children went to mostly British schools. But the last year before we returned to the US, our daughter went to an American school of Paris. And at the fall semester welcome, one of her teachers said <coughs> she had gone to college and she had decided to pick up the ropes of the family machine. That's how she put it. I'm, I decided that it was time for me to pick up the ropes of the family machine. And she explained that her parents and most of her family were teachers. She had been born into a family of teachers. It was the family machine, the family business. When we're born into God's family, we're also born into the family business. God's grace doesn't just wipe away our sin. God's grace doesn't put us in right standing with God in spite of our sin. God's grace asks us to join into the work of the kingdom. Dallas Willard had a saying that we should all take to heart. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. This wonderful distinction reminds us of this side of grace as well. The famous apostle is the same one who described his task as, in 2 Corinthians 6, 4 to 10, he says that it was one of great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, all in order to share with others what he had been given, the hope and the grace he had received. He had no trouble 
seeing the connection between grace and effort, did he? Richard Foster helps us understand a little more about the ongoing work of faith when he says, grace saves us from life without God. Even more, it empowers us for life with God. The grace we received at the new birth is only the introduction. As students of Jesus, we need grace for growth as well. Grace opens up this amazing possibility that we all have. And we don't want to waver between sin and forgiveness, sin and forgiveness. We have an opportunity to have a destiny in Jesus Christ. And so the third point today on how to apply this is this deeper side of grace is third, we need to grow into the image of Jesus Christ. The deeper side of grace is the discovery that our new birth should be followed by growth into the image of Jesus Christ. The deeper side of grace is that when we join in the family business, we also begin to take on the family likeness. Here's another way to think of it. Co-laboring with Christ is the very activity that begins to grow the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. As we joyfully work side by side with Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, we begin to become conformed to his image. Romans 8.29 says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. This tells us that our destiny is that not only will we live with him forever, but he wants us to be changed into his likeness as well. And that starts now, here on earth, as we follow him. Matthew 11 points also to this important revelation that Jesus invites anyone who would follow him to also come under his instruction and learn his way of life. He said in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 to 30, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus said, put my collar, my yoke, on you and learn from me. And this image was a common image in the day of Jesus of the yoke. Oxen would pull with a yoke on them. A yoke was a large collar and it placed the strength of that ox or that horse or mule at the disposal of someone else. And that's what God wants for us. He, grace calls us to God's work. We place our strength at his disposal. He doesn't conquer us, does he? He doesn't come in and just, you're going to do this. No, we personally have to bow down to Jesus before him as a matter of choice, as a decision of our wills to do this. The path to becoming like Jesus starts with his invitation to us. Come to me. And as he speaks that to us, we can either choose to accept that invitation and to humble ourselves before him or not. Grace is more, about, more than about knowing. Grace is also about being. If God wants to give me the grace to become more like Jesus, and if it takes a little effort on my part, then count me in. It's how we take the yoke. It's how we position ourselves to learn from him.
Today, as we close, I want you to think about that. You know, God's offering you this opportunity. Yes, he offers us the opportunity to be saved by grace, but he also offers us the opportunity to become more like Jesus, to grow into the image of Jesus Christ, to be part of the family business. I'd just like to ask you now as we close, just bow your head and think, how many of you would say, yep, I've maybe had the wrong image of God's grace. I'm, I'm stuck in that baby stage of following Jesus Christ. And I'm thinking, yeah, I'm a, I'm a sinner saved by grace, and I'm not thinking about how I need to grow into Jesus Christ's image. I need to pick up the ropes of the family business. If that's something you want to say yes to today, to grow in your faith, to become more like Jesus Christ, just raise your hand right where you are. Make that commitment before God. Thank you. Lord God, I thank you for the fact that today we learn that our faith is more than just about us being a sinner saved by grace, that we can grow in your, in your likeness, Lord Jesus, that you can wash that junk off of us, that you can help us become more like you. Lord God, I pray that we would understand the opportunity we have to be part of the kingdom, to be part of what the kingdom work is, and to do that, to pick up the ropes of the family business, to do what you've called us to. Lord God, that our destiny would be something that we would understand and would be revealed to us, and that as we walk that out, Lord God, we would see how can we be more like Jesus. Holy Spirit, fill us from the top of our head to the soles of our feet with the power of God to be able to do the things we've call, been called to do. Lord God, I thank you. Then in, even in this tough time that we're in today, Lord God, um, with sickness around us, with unemployment, with financial and uh, personal needs, Lord God, we can look for opportunities to walk out your grace in our lives. We can become more like you. Help us to be faithful, Father, and obedient to you to do what you've called us to. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity today to, to make that commitment again. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.